you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 24. We're still in the life of David, and as we come, I wanted to make a little bit of a shift as we've moved from 2 Samuel uh, to the place where we're going to look at a psalm, and this leads us kind of into Thanksgiving, um, I hope, and that you would celebrate this week with a little bit different perspective. And so please turn to Psalm 24, and uh, we're going to look at this psalm this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, as we come to your presence, we ask that you would lead and guide. Lord, this is your word to your people. And so, Father, truly give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Lord, let us truly grasp just the sweetness that we get this week of coming, some of us with loved ones. Lord, that we would give you all glory, honor, and truly thanksgiving. Teach us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as you look at Psalm 24, many uh, people are disagreeing about the purpose of this psalm. Many people believe that it's David wrote it in regards to the Ark of the Covenant coming, being brought back into Jerusalem. We're not sure. But it is a psalm of David where he writes as a prophet, and ultimately this is a messianic psalm. It connects to Jesus Christ, and we're going to see that as we unpack it. But the purpose before us today is to find out why do we glorify and honor? Why do we give thanksgiving to Jesus Christ? So we're going to unpack that this morning as we look at Psalm 24. Look in your Bibles. The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he is founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. For such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient days, that the King of glory may come in. And who is this King of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient days, that the King of glory may come in. And who is this King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of of glory. So as we begin to unpack this, we're going to see, first of all, that it's the king's world. Look at verses 1 through 2. So the first thing that we understand is that um, he talks about being creator and sustainer of all there is. He is the creator God. Now this is uh, not a, something that he's debating. He assumes that we agree with his statement. It's a, he asserts this truth. Because God is the one who creates ex nihilo, out of nothing, and by his very words, he's created all that there is by his very words. And that should be a big deal, that God out of nothing, there wasn't something that was out there and God began to start forming it. There was nothing, there was only God. It's not the Big Bang Theory. It's not something that goes against the laws of science or creation. It is the creator and he creates out of nothing by his very words. And he creates all that there is. And because he is the creator God, 
everything is His. He is the one because He owns it. He sustains it and He rules over all things. Now, a lot of times we begin to kind of get that mixed up. We begin to think that we do a lot of things. We can control a lot of things here on earth. All you have to do is look to what mankind calls Mother Nature to see we're still not in control. We're not. Going to the wedding uh, last weekend, uh, if you, I'm someone who is uh, born and raised here in Florida. I think I understand hurricanes. I've been through multiple hurricanes. I grasp and understand it. And I've become a little bit arrogant as a hurricane person. I think I've figured it out. I think I've understood, hey, when we start getting the warnings, this is what's going to happen. And if we have a class three hurricane or less, it's not that big of a deal. We're going to stay here. We're not moving. We're going to have the pirates go out, but we're prepared for it. We're ready for it. But driving up through the panhandle, it overwhelms me looking at the hurricane damage. In the course of a few days, it goes from a hurricane class two to a class four upwards of a class five. And there are literally, literally patches of land where the trees and we've seen trees here during hurricanes and it's usually because we see the trees knocked over because the grounds got wet and there's so much wind it pushes them over and you see the whole tree fall over there it was uh, fields of trees that were snapped in half and it overwhelmed me the power that god has he is the creator and sustainer and he rules all Things And he lets us know very clearly, this is my place. Now, we all understand that and grasp that. I mean, as a youth pastor, I used to love kids who would come over to my house and begin to complain about their parents. And I would jump on board. You're right. Let's show your parents a thing or two. Here's what you need to do. You need to leave the house. You need to pay all your bills. You need to take care of everything. Get off of their insurance. Don't let them pay for your car payment. Don't let them pay for your car insurance. Don't let them pay for your phone. Don't let them pay for anything. You show your parents you're ready to be on your own. At which point the teenagers would become very quickly quiet. Well, maybe it's not so bad at home. Hmm, Maybe it's not. But see, it's that illustration. See, everything is God's. And somehow we think that just because we God's given us an, a, a part of it, that we somehow control it. And God says, no, it's all mine. And he says, it's not for exploitation. It's for his satisfaction and it's for his glory. That's why all creation cries out. Because it is the creator God. And they rejoice. But we don't just have him as a creator and sustainer. He says he created this for, why? For all the people. Look at it. It says for the world and those who dwell therein. Now he's writing this to Israel. And so, but the problem with Israel is Israel's thinking that everything that's there is for them. God is for them ethnically. It's all about Israel. It's not about everyone else. God's there for him politically. God is going to establish the throne of David forever and they're going to rule the earth and they're going to be able to do that. And they're going to be there geographically. But the reality is, is God said to the people of Israel, hey, it's your responsibility to go out and preach the gospel and to bring a blessing to the whole world, not just for themselves. Now I want you to apply that to us, to the church. 
Because we think that the issues or the problems are outside of us. How many of us are complaining about the government and about the, the, the recent um, failure of our system again in the state of Florida to find um, votes? So we complain about that. We complain about jobs. We complain about family members. There's probably more complaining coming up this week than most weeks as people and families get together. So we complain about all those things that are external. And so a lot of times our fight becomes external. But the reality is our biggest issue is inside of us. And it's sin. That's the biggest issue. It's not things out there. It's things within us. I remember speaking to a teenager very clearly um, one, one morning. And I asked him about um, his relationship with Jesus Christ. And I remember him very explicitly saying this. What do I need a savior for? That shocked me. He said, I have everything I need. I'm going to a good college. I have some scholarships. I, my parents take care of everything. I don't, what do I need to be saved from? I said, it's, it's your heart. It's your heart that's evil. It's not the things that need to be fixed. It's you. And the reality is we have the responsibility. We are to be the blessings to the whole world around us. We're not to be closed off. We're not to be like Israel and become ethnically, geographically, politically. We are separate and those people are bad. Listen, a pastor sent me this week. Here's a quote. Jesus didn't shy away from sinners. So why should the church? And don't tell me the church welcomes sinners. I know better. It welcomes only sinners who repent and then never seriously need forgiveness again. Do you hear that? That's not where this place needs to be. We need a church that is open to sinners to come and to sit next to you. And to not to be perfect. Do we always point them back to Jesus? Of course we need to point them back to Jesus. But Jesus needs to get bigger in our lives, not smaller. And God says, I've come. I'm the creator and sustainer of all the universe. And I come for all nations, all people, all tribes. So he tells us this, that it's his world. The second thing he tells us in verses 3 through 6 is it's his people. He comes to prepare his people. Now again, I want you to look at these verses. And in reality, with our theology, we should start probably verse 6 and work back. Okay? But the way it's written, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? That's the question. Who can do it? And so the question that he's asking is who may ascend specifically the hill of the Lord? Now again, when you talk about things in this time period, when you talk about ascending the hill, when you talk about coming back to the capital or the citadel, it's usually a conquering king coming back to the city. And he usually comes back with a parade. Now I want you to apply this, even though we're coming into Advent, I want you to apply this to Palm Sunday. Okay, so here's Jesus on the foal of a donkey. The donkey is a burst, a beast of burden, but it's also a beast of peace. And as Christ comes in to Jerusalem upon a donkey, it is this understanding that's going on. He's coming back to the holy place. He is the one who's ascending the hill. He ascends the hill into Jerusalem. It is an actual hill that ascends to the city of Jerusalem. And only that, then he ascends to the temple within the city. 
He ascends in the temple and then he turns over the tables and the money changers. He ascends to Golgotha and the cross. And then ultimately he ascends to heaven. See, it's not David who's coming in there. It's the symbolism of Jesus Christ coming. And so he is the one who ascends the hill, but he's also one that allows us to stand in the holy place. Why is this so important? As Neil has already read, it's Jesus' sacrifice that allows us to stand in the presence of God. It's a one-time perfect sacrifice. If you remember, if you're a good historian, you would see that God has been with his people. He tabernacled with his people. Then there was the temple. Then when Christ comes, he says, I am now God with you. I am tabernacling with you. He is the one who's the perfect sacrifice that opens a curtain that allows us to come into the holy place. And only that, he says, he will come back and there will be no need for any temple. We won't have to go find God because Jesus will be there. And so that's what we look for. And because Christ has done this, we can now stand. We're not groveling. We're not on our hands and feet. You get to stand before the God, the King, because of Jesus Christ. And only that, the King hears you because he hears his son and so he says come ascend the hill stand in the holy place because of why because of the righteousness of christ if we were to try to stand before him listen to the question he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now I want you to understand that this is as clear a justification by faith statement in the Old Testament if there ever was one. The only way that we can stand And the righteousness is in the righteousness of Christ. There is no man who can stand. Scripture is very clear. There is no one righteous. So look to your left, look to your right, see how nicely they're dressed, see how nice they wore to you or anything like that. They all are not righteous enough to stand before God. All we have to do is look at each other's hearts. So no one's righteous. No one can stand, but he also makes, this is a a weird statement, you should make a note of this. Why does he say in the psalm, who seek the face of the God of Jacob? Now Jacob changes his name, does he not? And Jacob's new name is Israel. So it's after this time period. So why doesn't he say those who seek the face of the God of Israel? See, I think he's making it very clear that he's pointing out that there is the reality of sin within us. Jacob was the deceiver. He was the one who twisted things. He was the one who had to have the experience where he fought with God himself. And when he figured out that it was God, what did he try to do? He held on. When he was wrenched in his hip, he held on to the leg and he said, don't leave me until you bless me. That's what we should do as sinners. We should be holding firm to Jesus Christ. And again, I understand we live in a day and in a culture where people think of sin as doing something bad. Oh, well, I cheated, I stole, I lied, I did these bad things. But the reality is, is people go, well, I'm not a bad person. 
I'm not a sinner. I'm not perfect, but I'm not a bad person. Listen to this um, definition from Keller. Tim Keller said that sin is when we make good things ultimate things. So we can make anything sin. Our families can become sin if they become the ultimate thing in our life. Ministry can become sin if it becomes greater than Jesus Christ. Our jobs can become sin if it becomes greater than Jesus Christ. No one's righteous. No, not one. Except for the perfect man, God, and Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus does for us, and according to this passage, and we'll see other passages, he gives to us righteousness, or what we kind of define as justification. See, what happens is Jesus does not just die for our sins. He does that, but he doesn't just do that. If Jesus only died for our sins, it doesn't give to us the perfection that's required. So Jesus, for the gospel message to be preached, has to do something else. He has to give us his righteousness, his perfect life. That's what allows us to come into God's presence. So it's twofold. He pays for our sins, but he also gives to us his righteousness. Look at Romans 5, 17 through 18. For it is because of one man's trespass, Adam's, that death reigned through that one man. Now much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's what Christ does for us. So that when he looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. And that's what we, he needs to see. And so what happens, he then allows us to have clean hands and a pure heart. That's how we have the clean hands and the pure heart. Because of Christ. Listen to what also uh, Psalm 15, 2 through 5 says. It is he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. See, this is what God is saying. If we have clean hands and a, a, a pure heart, then this will be our desires. We would want to love one another, encourage one another, build each other up. Well, pastor, you don't know what I've been through. Pastor, you don't know what's been said about me. You don't know who's talked behind my back. You don't know who said hard things. You don't know who's written me bad letters. You don't know. Jesus does. Jesus does. And Jesus looks at the people who called out for his crucifixion and crucified him and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, to be a church that loves the way that Christ loves, that forgives the way that Christ forgives. Lay that at the foot of the cross because Jesus has paid the price. Give it all to him. And then go and live to his glory.
So God says it's his world. God says these are the people that are mine. But then he finishes up with a statement of saying he's coming again. Look at verses 7 through 10. And this would have been sung or read back between either a single people um, or choirs. And so it says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient days, that the king of glory may come in. And then there were to be a response. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. So lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient days, that the king of glory may come in. And who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Lift up your heads. What does that mean? Well, all of us understand what it means to long after something, right? We long for birthdays. We long for weddings. We long for a return of someone. There's an, a, a longing looking with eagerness. Oh, you, you get up. I mean, kids, if you have grandparents coming this week, especially for Thanksgiving or whatever, and they're going to be driving in, or you go pick them up from the airport, how excited do you get? Oh, they're coming. Yay. Eagerness. See, I think, I think people in our day and age, I think we keep our heads hung. Oh, poor me. Life stinks. Rejoice! Lift up your heads. The king, the king is coming. And he says, look to the gates. Be living in eager expectation. Presbyterian people get excited for once. It's okay. Because we look with eager expectation because there's hope. The king is going to come. And the one that's coming is going to bring results. Right? When we look with eager expectation, when we look for the grandparents, we don't sit there and go, this is going to be a horrible week. Thanksgiving is ruined. (laughs) You look with eager hope. You hope if you have good grandparents, if you want to be a good grandparent, listen to me. Bring gifts. They will rise and call you blessed. Bring gifts. Bring love. Bring mercy and grace. Bring encouragement and good hope. Do we look like that for our Savior Jesus Christ? Are we going to give thanks this Thanksgiving and say, Oh, our Savior has come and He's coming again. And I'm looking. I'm begging. I'm looking with great expectations out the window. Come, Jesus. Remember two weeks ago I told you that, that illustration, okay, of the, the kids that had the, the mental handicap. And they said, what was the maintenance problem? The maintenance problem was dirty windows because every day the kids would get up and go to the window and place their faces and their hands against the window saying, is this the day that Jesus is coming? (sighs) Look with eager expectations. Because he asked the question, who is the king of glory that he may come in? And I want you to understand, he is one, he's the warrior. He is the warrior He is the king that has defeated Satan, death, and sin. Look to this passage in in, uh, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the vinepress of the fury and the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the warrior king. This time he doesn't come on a donkey. He doesn't come in a manger. He comes upon a white steed of war. And he ushers in the end. He's my Savior and he's your Savior. And he calls us to be a part of that army wrapped in robes of white upon our steeds to go out into battle to fight sin and death and darkness, to go out and to set the prisoners free, to go and preach the gospel. Listen, your non-Christian friends don't know any better. They think this world is all there is. They think their political party really is the answer to all the woes. They really believe that America is great. Jesus is the answer. And He's the only answer. And it's to Him we look with great expectation because He is the Lord of hosts. Listen, in the rabbinical writings, it says of this psalm, it was uh, read and recited every uh, first day of the week. Now what day is the first day of the week? Sunday. So now I want you to picture again that Palm Sunday when Jesus is sitting on the colt and he's coming into Jerusalem. He's ascending the hill of the Lord and it's on a Sunday. And this is what the people are saying, the crowds are saying about Jesus from Matthew 21, 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Not a Presbyterian shout, Hosanna. A Baptist shout, a Pentecostal shout. The shout you have when you're at a football game. Hosanna! To the Son of David. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And at that same moment that they were crying out, ushering Jesus in to Jerusalem, they were shouting in the temple, Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your heads and be lifted up, O ancient days, that the King of glory may come in. The Lord who is mighty in battle, so lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient days, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Same time. Because Jesus is the Savior. So how do we respond? He calls us to be living sacrifices. We are to give all honor. We're to give our worship. And we're called to serve one another and his church, and his kingdom. Celebrate Thanksgiving this week. Don't go through the motions. Don't get up for the food. Enjoy it. If you're a football person, enjoy the football. If you're a parade person, enjoy the parade. If you're just a sleeping person, enjoy your sleep. But more than anything else, 
When you go to give thanks, give thanks to the King of glory. Now, as I close, one thing. Ask the people that are in your row if they have a place to go for Thanksgiving. After the service, not now. And if they don't, invite them. If you're really bold, tell them to go to the Bennett's family. They have so many people, they won't even know if you show up. You just go. But make sure no one is alone this Thanksgiving. Invite them. Bring them in and tell them why you give thanks this year. Because the King of glory has come in. And we look forward to that day. Dirty your windows. Dirty your windows. And you look for his return. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, Son of God, 100% man and 100% God who gives to us not only the payment and a ransom for our sins upon the cross, but you give to us your righteousness. What an incredible gift that we can stand in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who spoke all of creation into being by his word. He is the all-powerful God and he listens to me. A sinner. What an incredible gift. Lord, may we never, ever get tired of giving you thanks for all things that we endure. But Lord, for most of all, for the King of glory. May he come back soon. This we pray in Christ's name.